You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. All right, folks, the Root Simple Podcast is back after way too long a break. Uh, Our excuse is that Kelly and I have been working on the house and even building furniture to fill that house. And all these things always take way longer than I think they will. Speaking of houses, we'll be talking on this episode of the podcast to the architects behind UXO. Before we do that, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers and call out by name the supporters at the $10 a month or above level. So thanks to Carter B., Robert G., David, and Sandy. Thanks to everyone else who contributes. Your support defrays our hosting costs and keeps the cats and dogs in kibble. This episode was prompted by a little thing that happened in Twitter. I posted a kind of nightmarish Victorian house flip that happened in Oakland, and that prompted an email from James Hurd and Ashton Ham of UXO Architects, who had some interesting opinions about this flip and about architecture and city design in general. So I asked them to join us on the podcast. So here is my conversation with Ashton and James. So, uh, James and, and um, Ashton, uh, thank you for joining us today. Talk about uh, a, a interesting set of issues in architecture. Uh, I, I had posted a, uh, a, a short Twitter, I retweeted, shall we say, something about a, uh, a flipper house in Oakland that kind of ignited the internet a little bit for a while. And um, James, you wrote me and Kelly a letter and Kelly was so excited. She ran into the room. We got the best letter ever, she said, because <laughs> it was a very thoughtful and interesting look at this particular case. Uh, so I wondered if we could start out with um, talking a little bit about what we can about uh, about this particular little Twitter uh, incident that, that happened a few weeks ago. Yeah. So um, it's funny because that that project was what was it was it a year ago already after that we had over a year ago um and so i hardly remembered it and I, i looked at your post and for some reason that image stuck out to me and i was like where do i know that house from and so i sent it to ashton and i was like did we try and do work on this house immediately she was like yeah that we submitted a proposal to that and so i don't know that sort of set me off and i i immediately started hammering out an email to you guys and in the course of that you let me know that there's kind of like um a task rabbit for architects is that is that true i mean yeah there's a few models um i think that that would kind of spur the, the gig economy within the architecture profession i think um, Thumbtack is one example of that. And so this puts you into what's commonly been called the precariat. Now you've been, your profession seems to be disrupted. Is that, is that the case? And, and there's these sort of low ball bids now for architectural work. Yeah. The, um, I don't know, it's sort of the DIY, uh, stuff that goes on with flipping and all of that has really, I think, depressed the value of architects because people who are flipping their houses are interested in doing the most work for the least amount of money so they can make the most profit. I mean, it's a, a business decision, not an architectural one that they're making. 
And so how do you organize your own company? First of all, I'd probably say the name of it, UX, UXO. And how is it differently organized than a normal architectural firm? Ashton and I uh, started working, well, we started working together when we were in school, uh, which was five years ago now. And Ashton, well, maybe you talk, Ashton, about how you started UXO on your own. Oh, yeah. I mean, not to dwell too long on it, but um, I essentially, you know, took some pretty small projects at the beginning and slowly got more overwhelmed with that. And um, James and I had a history of working together and we've always wanted to have a practice together. So once I reached the point of really needing some help, I um, had to kind of convince James that it was a great idea. Um, but we're organized as a worker-owned um, cooperative, I guess, through our bylaws, though legally organized as a, corp- a corporation in the state of California. Yeah, so working cooperatively is something that we uh, we had always talked about doing. And I, I think once we started working together, I don't know, it was sort of through the architecture lobby that we really learned about the mechanisms of cooperative organization. And immediately it was something that we wanted to establish just to be able to share work, um, you know, wage transparency. And eventually when more people come into UXO Architects, we don't want them to have the same experiences that we had working in the architecture profession where they are, uh, where their skills are undervalued. You know, uh, everyone who works for us has it's one worker one vote and i just want to say kind of since the beginning we've really always had the ethos of collective or collaborative but we really didn't understand um that there weren't any kind of rules behind those words and that really kind of the structural implication came with the term cooperative or worker cooperative and so once we kind of found out what that actually meant through our work with the architecture lobby um we really latched onto that as as really um, the direction we wanted to go. So let's get to the architecture lobby. But before we do that, uh, why don't you why don't you describe some of the problems uh, and some of the um, you know it's not easy actually being in architecture. What are some of the problems of being uh, young people like yourselves in in this profession? I think labor exploitation is a huge huge problem. Um, it seems like. A lot of firms are excited about young workers because they don't have families yet and they can work extra hours without necessarily being paid the overtime that they're deserving of. And so kind of there's this thing that happens where you you get your first job out of school and you're kind of scared because you want to impress your boss. And then all of a sudden you're three months into working 65 hour weeks and there's no way out of that kind of pigeonhole you've you've made for yourself and you're often right working in a big expensive city so in a way and there's unpaid internships too is that correct so a lot of times you have to be wealthy in order to even enter into this profession because you have to be able to live in a in a big city for a while pay the exorbitant rents and work for little or or nothing is that is that correct I was going to say the unpaid internships are less common now than they have been in the past, from what I understand. But um, I know that students coming from overseas are often exploited uh, with unpaid internships uh, and that unpaid internships are also used as sort of uh, exactly what you're saying, Eric, a, a gatekeeping mechanism. There's sort of this old guard of architecture, this sort of 
you know, people who believe in this tradition that architecture is a gentleman's profession of the upper classes and unpaid internships are a tool used to try and keep the profession that way. But I would also say that the barrier to entry does start um, in academia, right? It's a, it's a five-year program for a bachelor's and oftentimes it's six years because you do a four-year undergrad and a two-year master's. And that's a lot of schooling for, for our profession. School is expensive in the U.S. And you also have licensure fees on top of that, which yeah. um, can total, mm, what, probably about two grand, including study materials. Mm-hmm. And then it's also traditionally a man's world. Ashton, could you say something about being a woman in the uh, design profession and architecture profession? Absolutely. And I, I think um, I experience this pretty frequently. I think that, you know, and also just to kind of put out there, we're, we're young, right? But we, we do have some experience. Um, and I have some fabrication, metal fabrication experience too. But when I go to talk with contractors about certain things, they still kind of approach me as if, you know, I have no experience with building and I know nothing. And I think that that's, you know, it's an interesting position, right? And I think not only with contractors, but when you're talking to municipalities. So when I go to submit for permits, um, I'm often confused as the owner of the property rather than the licensed professional submitting on behalf of the owner. Well, you, you both describe UXO as, a, as an activist project. So uh, we've talked a little bit about some of the issues. How, how do you address these issues through UXO and through describing it as an activist project? When we, I guess, UXO itself as an activist entity um, is sort of the fact that it's a, a cooperative. And we didn't really view that as so radical a decision that we were making it just seemed obvious to us and when we started down that road we realized um, not many architecture offices do that and as far as we know we are only the second architecture office in the U.S. that is organized this way there's one in Martha's Vineyard uh, that is also similarly organized Um, and so we teamed up with an attorney uh, that specializes in cooperative organization and um, a Tuttle Law Group, and sort of started crafting this structure from scratch and, uh, you know, sort of learned along the way. And that dovetailed nicely with a project that the architecture lobby is still tackling called Socializing Small Firms. It's a a national campaign to uh, bring worker ownership to the profession. And what day-to-day would that worker ownership look like in terms of your relationship working on a project? Um, How how does it work? So so we really see the the cooperative model as a a good way to kind of create transparency um, through all of the tasks associated with running the practice. So not only is there kind of wage transparency and James and I, you know, right now there's two of us, but everything is 50 50. So we've created no kind of power dynamics between the two of us, but also like all of our admin tasks are split and like project management is pretty split. I think, um, it's, it's a huge thing in an office. You know, when you go in as an employee, you're really not part of the contract writing, for example, which is really, I think a huge, a huge, it was a huge interest of mine, for example, when I was an employee, um, you know, but I, I what, didn't have the opportunity to participate in something like that because why, why would I? 
Yeah. You know, we want to create an environment where ideas are um, are shared equally and discussed rather than sort of a, a typical model of bringing in a young person fresh from school and they're just mined for ideas until they sort of lose energy and then they can, you know, become a drafts person or something else. And a, another student will come in the door soon with some fresh ideas that can be used. So in other words, if I'm a client, um, I might, I probably have a chance to meet with both of you rather than someone just takes the meetings and then someone else has changed the computer. Is that kind of the way it works? Absolutely. We, we've been, it's a little challenging because we have a bi-coastal office right now. Um, and so a lot of our work is in the Bay Area. And so that puts a lot of weight on me to, to meet with the clients. But what we've been doing recently is actually um, once we have an established kind of working dynamic with our clients, James and I have been doing a lot of digital meetings where we actually share the documents digitally. And so we're both participating in the meeting. And I think it's a much better way because the the way James and I work is we're in constant communication. Actually, me going to the meeting and having this like hour long conversation kind of cuts James out of like a lot of this really important communication that's going on. And so we're really liking this like new model of of digital meeting. And hopefully, when we do kind of join in a physical space again, you know, we'll have these meetings more in person together. I was gonna say, and I, I'm, uh, I'm out in California every, oh, between two and three months. And so when I'm out in California, we're meeting with clients together. Right. So uh, you mentioned, I want to back up a little bit, you mentioned the architecture lobby. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you uh, both of you could describe what that is and what your roles have been with it in, in the past and in the present. Sure. The, the Architecture Lobby is an a international organization that advocates for fair labor and wage practices um, among, within the architectural profession and um, you know, among many other things. They have quite a few active campaigns. So I'm the national secretary of the organization. Yeah, and so I... I I got involved with the architecture lobby when I was living in Chicago. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, um, became uh, the chapter steward for the LA chapter. And now that I'm in Boston, I'm just a member of the organizing committee. And you have a manifesto I'll link to in the show notes or the architecture lobby, I should say, has a manifesto that's very provocative. Um, we've already touched on a few of those issues, but I think we'll get to some more of them before the, the hour is over. But, um, you work in primarily in the Bay Area, and uh, the, this was again was touched off with this flipper incident. And of course, uh, one huge issue in in the Bay Area is is the affordability of housing. It's extraordinarily expensive there, and so you know this incident kind of brings up questions of gentrification and housing affordability. How I mean, oh, this is like a huge issue. But what what are your thoughts on on this? And I know you've done some some projects. One of which is the called the Last House on Mulholland that kind of addresses some of these issues. But um, what are your thoughts about this gentrification and housing affordability and flipping in the Bay Area? All this kind of thing and just the just extraordinarily expensive uh, real estate in in your area and and down here in L.A. where I live as well. It's tough being an architect uh, working in housing right now because you are always in some way complicit in the system. Um, the way that housing is presently structured as sort of this um, privately driven, profit-oriented model means that displacement is sort of baked in to the system. 
and uh, you know developers are always looking for cheaper land to then build more expensive buildings on or buildings that they can charge more expensive rent for should say and that will then in turn raise property values and anyone who's renting in the area if they don't have rent control gets pushed out and so as an architect you know even if you're working on a single family home um you often find yourself in a situation where uh you're sort of playing the bad guy how how would how do you through your means in a in an architecture firm address these issues as i guess as best you can so i think that architects uh sort of have the opportunities to be leaders for alternative models of uh, construction, which mm-hmm. currently architects aren't speaking very loudly about. Um, the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, is pretty on board with this developer-driven housing. They they view it as a simple supply and demand problem. So, as architects, we just have to be louder that. You know, we can imagine a better future, that this is not all we have available to us. And there are plenty of other countries out there that have models of housing development that aren't exploitative um, or less exploitative. Speaking of just true affordable housing, housing that's not viewed as a um, a affordable housing that's not a transitional home but affordable housing that is just housing that's permanent housing for families that is not located on the outskirts of cities, but is located near public transit hubs that is as amenity rich as any luxury apartment building. And that that's funded by municipalities. Not through. Well, it, it seems like what we have right now, at least in Los Angeles is on the one hand, you have this kind of extreme NIMBY component that wants the status quo, the suburban housing model. And on the other side, you have kind of like a neoliberal democratic machine politics that thinks that the, somehow the, the free hand of the market will take care of housing. If we just build more and more housing, mm-hmm. it'll be taken care of, right? So so you're suggesting some kind of government housing model? Is, is that what what I'm hearing? Definitely. I think, I think this kind of private public kind of split entity that's going on right now is, is not the solution um, to the problem. I think that if it, that if the, um, you know, local governments fund their own projects, I think they will be much more successful. You know, I, I just always think this system has been in place for a, a long time, this sort of current model of housing. And so how long do we give it to succeed? How long do we have to see the effects of it before we realize, you know, maybe we just need to try something different. Maybe uh, profit-driven housing will just not create sufficient affordable housing. Maybe we just have to do something else. You also say that on the website, your website, the future of the single-family home is the multifamily home. Uh, what would what would a multifamily home look like, and how is it different than the current kind of way we live? I think what you're referring to is this competition that we entered. Right. Um, yeah. So, so I think the proposal was for a, a single-family home, and we kind of 
proposed that it looks like more communal living, right? So we created this like central hub, where which was like a big kind of communal kitchen and dining room and like living space, um, kind of with surrounded by this outdoor space and then these individual little units that the families would inhabit and each each family would have its own like prop like small little kitchenette for example within their own unit but that there was this kind of centralized space and I think what we're imagining is just people you know sharing with their neighbors you know having more of a community in their space right so not exactly like a 1960s commune right a little different than that But also not like a single-family home either. But now, of course, as architects, you're going to run into codes too. Now, is that going to be a problem for this kind of housing? Could you do you think you could do something like that today? I think the the biggest hurdle in with codes is actually not building codes, but planning codes. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I worked in Los Angeles for a, a few years, and um you know, different uh, counties within Los Angeles. I was doing work in Santa Monica and West Hollywood as well. Um, You know, planning departments have a tendency to uh, not want new typologies. They like things sort of the way they are. So I think that the biggest hurdle to uh, housing like this would be convincing the city to let you build it, you know, especially if it has a, a more modern aesthetic. Right now, now speaking of aesthetic, so that was another kind of issue with the um, the Oakland Flipper. I keep going back to the Oakland Flipper, and this was another thing that actually kind of drifted around the interwebs a few weeks ago. I think the um, person that does um, uh, McMansion, uh, what is it, McMansion Hell? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, she yeah. asked a funny question, like, "Why do all these?" What should we call these these large kind of complexes that are being built, at least a lot of in, in America and all sure. over the place, but also here in L.A. and San Francisco, these kind of boxy multi-unit uh, things that I think the consensus, uh, she you know, she asked what should we call it, and I think the consensus was uh, SketchUp Contemporary. Um, <laughs> but they're all kind of bland and boxy, and I, I was wondering why does you think that, or I mean, why do buildings, why do all these buildings look the same uh, aesthetically and and what 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 role do, does does say activism play in, in in looking at aesthetics as well yeah I, I can definitely answer the first part it's economic to have the same material you know all over the building it's just kind of I think a money money saving or money grabbing however you want to think about it solution to where you know these different bays that are popping out right if they're all the same dimension and same material there's no mistake you know the contractor kind of looks at that part of the drawing one time and then they just kind of copy and paste it all over the building and i think james probably has a great response for the second part of the question (laughs) well so i would also say that they look the same because architects make the lives of developers difficult we stand in the way of them uh making more money. You know, we don't want every building to look the same. We don't want every building to use hardy board paneling on the side. We don't want every building to just zigzag in and out along the street. You know, that's not architecture. Unfortunately, when every building looks different and is expressive, that costs money to build and that cuts into their bottom line. To hear them talk about it, there's just absolutely no way for them to even conceive of 
building in a different way. I, I don't know that the economics actually pan out that way. But if it if we take it at face value, if that is the case, then and that's another reason that we can't continue doing this because they're not making buildings; they're making boxes. I th- I think it's our job as architects to push push back, right? I, and I think it's a really hard system we've kind of put ourselves in because I think architects maybe in general have lost their sense of value because we've, you know, just kind of undervalued ourselves and the general public here in the United States doesn't necessarily understand our value. And so we we don't feel that we have kind of the power to push back against this ongoing situation, which seems to be the quote unquote heavy air quotes solution to the housing problem, which are these boxes, right? So basically asking the developer to pony up some more money I, it, it's it's the thing I'm curious about is pre twentieth century pre World War II, there seemed to be more of an obligation to make a building look I don't know more interesting in some way, whether it be a historical design or a modern design. Um, whereas it's just now it seems to be what's the cheapest way we can make this thing? Uh, is that is that fair? Or I mean, it seems like there was a more of an obligation to the community to make something that was more attractive uh, aesthetically. Well, I, I think capitalism has worked very successfully here in the United States. And so the cheaper you can make things, the quicker you can turn a profit, the better capitalist you are, right? So I think that in outside of the United States, the kind of desire to make public buildings a kind of better value to the urban fabric is just like it's generally more accepted i think people value better design um i don't know that i have you know the moment that things started turning you know um as you're referencing the 20 yeah i I mean I, i think that you're right to an extent there have been a decline in craftspeople in the u.s um a decline in organized labor, both things that contribute to a quality of a building. But America has also always had sort of a a shoddy building culture. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's why whole American cities were burning down, uh, you know, over the course of American history. So the buildings that exist to today from the past are obviously the well-built ones and the ones that um, weren't built as well have gone away as well as some of the ones that were well-built, unfortunately. Um, and so I, I think it's sort of important to reject this sort of romanticized notion. You know, in the 1920s, all of the buildings built were excellent. We just need to go back to that time. But I do also think, um, echoing what Ashton said, that uh, things have sort of gotten out of hand with uh, for-profit development. You know, because you see, like in Chicago the uh the modernist skyscrapers in chicago uh, you had large corporations employing uh architects to build sort of these very unique buildings and um you don't see that as much anymore i don't think another sears tower would get built uh nowadays in america let's say that we overturn <laughs> Global capitalism. Uh, what what would the built environment look like? Do you think what what sorts of things? How would it be different? How would the fabric of cities be different? What would the aesthetics of buildings look like as well? I think there's some really great international 
examples of this, right? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, social housing that happens, you know, in, in the UK, in Spain, um, for example. Yeah, and I think in the US, you know, in my uh, in my email, I mentioned to you that, uh, you know, if we were to have this sort of modern arts and crafts revival, uh, where we followed their ideology and roped up all of the best artists in Los Angeles to sort of work on these massive public projects, we would have a building that sort of, it's almost unimaginable to think of what it would look like. I mean, think of like the top illustrators in Los Angeles and all, all of the, the sculptors in Los Angeles, sort of this uh, cacophony of forms and styles. Um, I mean, I think it would be a fascinating <laughs> building. It's the sort of building I'd like to see. Um, I don't know that we could predict what it would look like. But it wouldn't look like what Prince Charles would want it to look like? <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, depending on the illustrators you find in L.A., I guess. <laughs> if you uh, went to Disney and hired some of their illustrators. Right, which used to happen here in the 20s. There's a lot of buildings here, as you know, that, that do look like, uh, like Disney cottages or something. But oh, yes. I, br I bring up Prince Charles I've sort of pointedly to to discuss this idea of, um, because it's just, also you see this on the web, this interest in, in traditional city design. Um, but it also, for some reason, also, a lot of these people seem also to be far-right folks. I, I, you know, I, I, and I find myself interested in traditional urban design, but then sort of repelled by the people that are interested in it, you know what I mean? So I wonder if you had any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I mean... Again, I, I think it's sort of rejecting the romanticization, but then also understanding that, you know, cars have destroyed our cities. Um, and so there is a, a way forward where we can sort of envision this new future for the city that maybe excludes cars from portions of it, um, you know, maybe making entirely walkable neighborhoods. We have a, a good friend in L.A. who... Uh, advocates for the entire historic core of Los Angeles to be turned into a walking district. And so I, I think things like that, you know, the idea of downtown Los Angeles being entirely pedestrian, that doesn't actually seem particularly far-fetched. And it also seems to uh, reject these ideas of going back to a previous time. Um, it's sort of taking the best of those ideas and deploying them in the modern city. And it's so frustrating because with some barricades, we could do that tomorrow. Whereas <laughs> yeah. the, the self-driving cars will probably never happen. Um, you know, it seems like, or the or Elon Musk tubes or whatever. But um, it, it, it seems like that's a very immediately doable thing. Yeah. Don't get me started on that car tunnel. <laughs> right. Absurd that that's even something that people are just excited about or impressed about. It's like, has anyone seen any of the tunnels that are being dug for the new uh, uh, L.A. subway extension? Those are much bigger tunnels. You know? Right. <laughs> and they carry more than two people at a time. Um. <laughs> right. Well, is there anything else that, that you guys want to talk about that I didn't ask about? What are your favorite buildings in Los Angeles? I, I'd be interested to hear sort oh, of... Uh, that's interesting. That. Well, I you know, like I said, I... I I have this obsession with pre-World War II buildings, so I don't know what this what this means, but I, I love the Central Library, mm -hmm. the old part of it, not the 
the '90s or '80s edition, the vaporwave edition yeah. to it, <laughs> right? I Although, guess, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, I, I would guess '80s on that edition. '80s, right? Although, I think that's a period maybe that I should get, you know, because everyone hates on it. Maybe that's the thing to embrace now. Is that kind of like tired postmodern look? I don't know. What What are your favorite buildings, either in LA or anywhere else? So, um, I love uh, a lot of the early brutalist work in downtown Los Angeles for the public spaces oh. that it creates. Um, mm -hmm. The forms of the buildings, some are better than others. Um, but I, I think sort of anytime they're making an effort to make a public space, the public space is well executed. You um, mean like the water and power building or the water and power building is nice. And there's one, um, is it federal Plaza? It's the, the area downtown that it sort of has a googie sculpture and this sort of bridge between these two plazas, a brutalist building facing those two plazas, and it sort of has this network of sunken uh, sunken courtyards in it that are really nice. Um, I also love, uh, I think my favorite house in Los Angeles is Neutra's VDL house. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, to me, that's sort of the, the pinnacle of... Uh, the modern single family house where you walk in the front door and immediately feel like you haven't walked inside, but instead you've walked somehow back outside and into a garden. Um, it's just a, a beautiful space that sort of brings together the, the interior and the exterior. Yeah. And there's the Irving Gill building across the street that was torn down. Unfortunately, he's another, you know, I, I think a really interesting architect. Ashton, you, anything in the Bay area, your favorite buildings? Oh, you know, that's a hard question for me because I think that the Bay Area is a little bit trapped, right? I mean, there are, there are plenty of examples of kind of forward-thinking buildings, but I would say that the San Francisco Planning Code has kind of put this conservatism on the built environment here, um, where, where, you know, the, there's a 50-year rolling clock in the city of San Francisco. So anything, no matter what the building is, if it was built 50 years ago is considered historic. And so in order to get around that, you're just like keeping facades and changing anything that's on the interior. So a lot of the work here is like the same or a repetition of, of the sameness. So um, that's kind of a, a weird environment for, for us to think about architecture within. Right. It's almost impossible to build things there, right? I mean, that's what I've heard. Oh, it's def it's certainly tricky. I mean, I know that, you know, there's other building departments, that, you know, James has shared plenty of West Hollywood's horror stories. But um, I think that, um, yeah, San Francisco is particularly challenging. And I think, too, in, in general, the I, and this is hard, I'm not trying to make a huge generalization, but but it seems like, you know, people aren't wanting outside of San Francisco, the kind of people that we're working with aren't necessarily interested in in trying more experimental forms. They really just kind of want what they've seen already done. Right. So actually, what is the, at UXO, what is the primary kind of thing that you've, you've worked on? It seems like some remodelings and that kind of thing. Is that is that kind of the, the small residential projects? Yeah, we've done a lot of um, smaller single-family uh, residential remodels um, because that's the bulk of our experience, and it's actually fairly easy to get that kind of work as a as a small young office not not that it's actually easy but <laughs> right. um, we, we've managed that and we're 
we're pretty new, but we're um, kind of making some ventures into the cannabis industry, working with some companies um, on manufacturing spaces and production spaces. Really? Wow. Um, so like uh, green indoor greenhouses, that kind of thing? Yeah, so, some, there's a little bit of um, growing that's happening and a lot of processing, actually, of the plant into different resins or um, edibles, for example. Sorry, I'm kind of fascinated. I imagine like a high security space as well. Is that right? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, um, I want to let you guys get back to work. Um, I'm glad, James, that you mentioned brutalism because that's, um, that's something I have a, a weird fixation on. Having gone to UCSD, uh, which is a brutalist mm. campus, that I kind of an amazing library. I don't know if you've ever seen that that building. Yeah, the Theodore Geisel. Yes, exactly. The inverted pyramid thing. Yeah. 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 Anyways. Um, all right. Any last thoughts? And uh, otherwise, um, it's been great yeah. to talk to you guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. That was Ashton Ham and James Hurd of UXO Architects. You can find their website at uxouxouxo.com. That's uxo3times.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. Thanks again to our Patreon supporters, and we'll have another podcast up hopefully a little bit sooner.